The Bottomless Pit by Bill True. Episode 1, Dear Journal. Dear Listener, My friends and family know that, in the fashion of many writers these days, it's my practice to spend the day holed up in a coffee shop somewhere until, hopefully, something significant makes its way from my head and onto the page. It was on one of these days, when the air outside was frigid and the sky was bleak and foreboding, that a dark figure in an oversized trench coat and wide-brimmed hat approached my table. The stranger sat, uninvited, across from me. I'd never met this person before, and they offered no name or other means of identification. Their collar was hitched up, and their hat was pulled down to just above their eyes so as to obscure the face. The person, he, she, spoke in guttural whispers so as to disguise their voice. It felt like I was in the middle of some old black-and-white detective movie, Sam Spade and the like. Not once did the stranger let any clue slip that would peg them as a particular character in the extraordinary tale directly preceding this foreword. Even so, one thing was abundantly clear. They had lived at least some part of this adventure. The stranger slid a manila envelope across the table but wouldn't release it from their gloved hand until I swore an oath to change all the names of the people and the locations on earth and never divulge them to anyone, ever. What was I going to say? What would you say? What would anyone say, right? I promised. At first, I wasn't sure that was good enough. The stranger wouldn't let go. Then I realized that wasn't the reason for their hesitation. I had a better view of their eyes now. There was something, a misting around the edges. This wasn't merely letting go of some envelope. It was letting go of something much larger. Without another word, they released the envelope. They rose and walked silently from the shop. All I could do was stare out the window as they melted into the fog that hung in the afternoon air, refusing to release the city from its clutches. Eventually, my senses returned and I considered the envelope. It had traveled a long way to get to this little coffee shop, My hands trembled, and I struggled to open the thing. Once that was accomplished, I slid the contents onto the table. There they were, four scuffed-up, spiral-bound notebooks. I lifted the cover of the top one. It was a journal. Upon reading the journal, I understood the need for secrecy. Assuming everything you are about to hear is true, if anyone discovered who these people really were or learned the actual whereabouts of the bottomless pit, Nevermore would either have a moment's peace. I agree with the stranger. It's best to keep all that under my own hat. Besides, I made a promise. I'm humbled the stranger trusted me to be the conduit for this amazing tale, which has utterly upended the way I view the world in which we live. So, dear listener, let's go on this magnificent adventure together. Is it true? I don't know. You can judge for yourself. I, for one, would like to believe it is.
June 26th, 1977. Dear Journal, I bought this notebook today at Henderson Drugs in town. I thought it was time I started keeping a journal. Journals are important. I want people to know the things I've done. That way if, or should I say when, I become famous, people will have a record of it. And not just any old record of it, but my own words, for me directly. I guess that's not the only reason why adventurers keep journals. I think they do it so they can read back on what they've written for reference, to remind them of what they've done, and tell if there's any clues about what they should do next. But I think they mostly do it for other people to read. But don't worry, I won't write this journal like it's going to be read. What I mean is this. It'll all be true. I won't hype something up or tell things that didn't happen. I'll tell it like it is, whether it's plain old boring or really exciting. Speaking of exciting, I had this really weird dream last night. I was raking the yard and back. We have this really big yard. It's over five acres. Anyway, I was raking and suddenly this kind of oval-looking thing appears about 50 feet in front of me. It kind of beams in, just like the people in Star Trek did. It looks like a small spaceship. I'm kind of scared at first. I think I should run, maybe to the house. But my feet won't let me. I'm stuck there. Finally, my feet begin to move. But they're not going to the house like my head said they should. Now they're dropping my rake and heading toward the thing. Then seams appear in the shape of a door. I freeze again. It's opening. My heart's racing. My legs feel like jelly. I think I'm going to either faint or pee my pants. I don't know. But I stay there and don't move. I'm interested. The door finally opens and this lady steps out. She's dressed in kind of a silver shiny suit, like the family in the Lost in Space TV show used to wear. She looks friendly. Her eyes are kind and warm, like she knew me forever and I was her favorite friend in the whole world. I look back at her, into her eyes, and I can tell she's been places and seen things and had adventures you just can't even imagine. My heart skips a beat. Finally, she talks. She tells me she's from another galaxy. She's been searching everywhere for a kid to help her save the universe. It's a dangerous job, but she's been watching me and thinks I have what it takes to do it. Will I accept? I can't believe what I'm hearing. It's like I'm saved, like she read my mind. Of course I'll accept. The lady holds out her hand and I reach for it. But right before we touch, I wake up. I open my eyes, and there I am, back in my own bedroom. Boring. I look out the window, and I see it's still dark out, but getting lighter. There's one star left in the sky, all by itself. I know how it feels, I tell it. I decide to make a wish on it, even if it's the last star I see instead of the first. What the heck, right? I wish something, anything exciting would happen someday. I wish I could be an adventurer and explore new places no one's ever seen. Do things, important things, dangerous things no one's ever done. I wish with all my might that my life would be different. I wish I wasn't like that star, just there and shining like a dummy when all the others have given up and gone to sleep, hoping that someone's still awake to maybe notice him. Maybe, someday, I think. Anyway, got to go. I'll write later, tomorrow. I promise. June 28, 1977.
Dear Journal, Okay, so I didn't write in this yesterday. Sorry. I'll make certain to keep up better. It was hard to think of something to write, though, until I read the stuff from my first entry and said to myself, You dummy! You forgot to tell your own journal who you are! It's dreams, I guess. My mom and dad say I dream too much. They say that dreams are nice, but you shouldn't let them get in the way of reality. I hate when they say that. The way I see it, dreams are where it's at. There's this commercial on TV about dreaming. It goes like this. There's a picture of the plane the Wright brothers flew, and some guy says, If man was meant to fly, he'd be born with wings. Then you hear people laughing. Next, there's a telephone, and some woman says, Carry my voice over a thin wire? Preposterous. Then more laughing. There's a couple of more things like that than some ad for some college. But what's cool about the commercial is all that stuff really happened. We have airplanes and telephones and guys walking in the moon because someone dreamed it up and took a chance to see their dream come true. Even though, kind of like my mom and dad, other people said, no way, you can't do that. These people still did, and look what happened. That's why I like to dream, even though it gets me into hot water sometimes. I just wish something would happen like in my dreams. Whoops. Well, chalk went up for mom and dad. I spend so much time talking about my dreaming, I forgot to tell you about me. My name is Jack Boniface. I'm 12 years old and going into 7th grade in the fall. Yep, 7th grade, junior, high school. I'm really happy about that. No more elementary school, almost a teenager. Pretty soon I'll be able to go more places, do more things, even drive one day. Heck, I wish I could drive right now. Then things would really start happening for me. I could drive now, I know how. My cousin Lisa let me drive her Chevy Impala two times, once on a real road, and I did fine. Man, if I had my license, I'd be out of here. My favorite movie is Star Wars. It's the best movie ever made. It just came out in movie theaters before school let out for the summer. I don't know if Star Wars will still be around when you read this, but if it is, I would try to watch it if I was you. It's a story about this boy. Luke Skywalker, who leaves his home planet of Tatooine and saves his galaxy from an evil empire. This kid, just like me, who's bored out of his gourd, nothing's happening. Then, suddenly, he's rescuing princesses, flying spaceships, blowing up enemy fighter ships, meeting cool and weird aliens. That's a story for me. That guy's got all the luck. Anyway, I have a lot of brothers and sisters, three of each, but I'm way younger than all of them, so I'm the only one at home. Which is kind of cool because I have my own room, but not so cool because it gets lonely sometimes. I mean, yeah, it's nice not to have to share everything. Plus, I'm glad my brother Scott is out of the house. He was always mean to me. But I think my mom and dad got kind of tired raising the six older kids because they really just leave me alone. Except for tons of chores. Which is cool, the leaving me alone, not the chores because they don't really keep tabs on me, so I can do what I want when I'm not busy. But kind of crummy, too, because I wish sometimes they'd spend a little more time with me. You know, like having fun and not just doing chores all the time. Like my friend Andrew. His parents are really neat. They do neat things with their kids, like get dressed up and go to the Renaissance Festival, or go on fairy hunts, or talk and laugh, and have cool conversations. 
I like to spend time at Andrew's house, even if Andrew can be a pain sometimes. Heck, sometimes I get so lonely, I even miss Scott. <laughs> no, really. Actually, I do. And it doesn't help that I live in the middle of nowhere. I'm not a town kid like Andrew. I live almost 13 miles, 13 miles out of town. If that's not bad enough, my house is two miles from the nearest tar road. Even worse, my driveway is a quarter of a mile long. This is the sticks. When Andrew wants a pop or something, he hops on his bike and in two minutes he's laying his quarter down on the counter of Henderson's drugstore and sipping a nice cold strawberry crush. Me? I'm walking my bike for almost an hour, trudging through the worst sugary sand you ever saw. No way you can ride in it, just to get to the tar road. Then, I'm riding another half hour to the nearest store, which is really a little gas station along the highway. Finally, I'm hoping and praying they ordered crushed strawberry because they always forget and I end up having to drink orange. Yuck. Oh well, at least I got my woods. We have about 80 acres of land and most of it's still woods. In the summer, it gets all overgrown with weeds and brush and stuff and it's just like the jungle. You can pretend you're on some safari. I track animals, look for Indian artifacts. I found tons of arrowheads and other things from when the Indians lived here. We live in Minnesota, so this whole area was once inhabited by them until the white people took it from them. Sometimes I think about that and it makes me feel sad. Because the woods are a really cool place and I think about some kid from an Indian tribe back then walking around there. This was his home then. I feel bad someone took it away from him. I wonder if he was bored like I am. I wonder if he thought about going on adventures or having something big happen to him. I guess something big did happen though, and it wasn't too great. Anyway, Paul, my best friend in the world, and I play in the woods all the time. We make like we're commando generals fighting guerrilla warfare against some evil enemy regime, or explorers, or treasure hunters forging through uncharted wilderness in search of some priceless treasure everyone wants, but no one can find. It's too dangerous for one, and it's too well hidden. Only we can find the way. I'm sure I'll tell you more about Paul later. Right now, it's late, after 10.30. I'm tired. Mom and Dad are gone somewhere. The house is too quiet, and it's raining outside at the same time. It feels a little creepy. I think I just need to go to sleep. Well, see you tomorrow. Promise. June 30th, 1977. Dear Journal. Okay, so I missed yesterday, too, but I had a good reason cross my heart. Remember last time... I told you it was raining out. At that time, it was just a little rain and thunder and stuff. But a few hours later, boy, did that change. Suddenly, I get waken up by this huge, I mean huge, crack of thunder. It sounded like a bomb went off or something. I look out my bedroom window, and rain is pelting the glass. I hear wind howling, and the hairs on the back of my neck are pricked up and tingling. Another loud crack of thunder, and I mean kaboom! The whole house shook. The lightning is so close, it lights up our whole backyard. I look out, and sure enough, this storm's a real doozy. Our burning barrels are knocked over, burnt up trash blown everywhere, there's tree limbs down, things turned over, it's a mess. This is so cool, I think to myself. I can't wait until the morning. Then I can call Paul, and we can go check out all the neat damage in the woods. 
there's always plenty of tree carnage after a whopping storm like this one. My planning is interrupted by my dad. They just got home. He checked the basement, and it's all flooded near one of our well pits and starting to leak into the area where we just put in new carpeting. I had to help him bail water and clean up down there. That took all the rest of the night. It was icky, wet, and messy work. Yuck. When I finally woke up again, it was almost 10 o'clock. Boy, did I sleep. Unfortunately, I didn't get to call Paul right away because all I had time to do is down a quick bowl of cereal and run outside to clean up from the storm. Outside was a disaster. My dad said it looked like a war zone. I've never seen a war zone in person, but I can imagine our yard all ripped apart is as close as it gets. I dug in and started cleaning up. I finally get to call Paul around lunchtime. He's not doing anything because, as usual, his family's not cleaning up after the storm. Actually, it's kind of funny to talk about Paul and Storms together because that's his last name. His full name is Paul Storm. His place is pretty run down because his mom and dad don't really take care of it. They're kind of not around a lot, like my mom and dad, but different. I mean, mom and dad like to take off a lot and do whatever. Paul's mom and dad are home almost all the time, but it's also like they're not there. They're just quiet and sort of sad mostly. So things get pretty messy and dumpy around there. Paul and I don't really talk about it, but I know it bothers him. He walks around not really happy most of the time either, and he spends a lot of time over here. Anyway, Paul says he'll be over as soon as possible. Since he doesn't have a bike, that really means see you in about four hours. He finally gets here though and helps me with the last of the cleanup. Now it's five o'clock and almost dinner time. Rather than having my mom cook for Paul and me, I tell her, we'll just make sandwiches because we want to check out the woods. I can tell she's pretty relieved because she's having one of those spells where she doesn't feel too well and has been lying on the couch a lot. I'm sure she's too tired to cook, so she's glad we're fending for ourselves. I have no idea what Dad did to eat. So we throw some sandwiches together and decide to take them with us because we want plenty of time to explore before it gets dark. When we get out there... It's even better than we could have hoped. This place is beyond a mess. Trees are toppled over. Leaves are ripped from branches and plastered over everything. They look like wallpaper on trunks of trees and rocks and things. Smaller plants are flattened, almost as if they've been trampled by elephants or something. We walk around in awe of the destruction that the storm left. I tell Paul, this place looks like a war zone. Shut up, he snaps back. You don't even know what a war zone looks like. I frown back at him. He can be such a touchy jerk sometimes. Okay, finally, here's the most important, cool, awesome thing that happened, though. We're walking around way deep in the woods. The sun's starting to set, so we know we have to head back soon. When all of a sudden, we see this huge, and I mean huge, oak tree toppled over. It must have stood a hundred feet tall, and its trunk was wider than a truck. Smaller trees are knocked down or broken in half from the force of it hitting them on its way down. Where the tree's roots used to be, the ground's been ripped up. Now it's in the air, still sticking to the root system. The roots themselves look like wiry alien tentacles poking out from the dirt. We move in for a better look. 
and there's a huge crater where the base of the tree used to be. Like, someone set a bomb off there. It's big enough for us to crawl down into, so we do. Me first, because I'm the leader of this expedition. The crater is almost six or seven feet wide, so we can really walk around in it. We look up and see that the exposed roots make for a kind of eerie canopy overhead. This is going to make one awesome fort, Paul says to me. I'm about to turn around and answer him when my foot goes through the dirt. And I don't mean a little ways, I mean a lot. Up past my knee so that my other leg buckles underneath me. I scream, and Paul turns around to find me kneeling on one leg. The other one's gone completely. What happened? He rushes over to me. As he gets closer, though, I can feel the ground beginning to give way underneath my free leg. I slip down an inch or two more. Stop, I yell. Don't come any closer. Why? Just stop, I scream back. He stops. I'm falling into something, and you're making me fall more. Can't you touch bottom, he asks, shooting a skeptical look at me. I move my foot around just a little bit at the ankle. All I feel is empty space. There's nothing there. It's like some big cave or something. Now I'm getting really scared, and I kind of feel like crying. But I hold back my tears so Paul doesn't think I'm a wussy or a baby. Paul sees I'm serious and starts thinking of a way out for me. Of course he cheers, like he was Einstein, and just figured out the theory of relativity or something. All the while, I'm just hoping he figures out a way to get me out quick because I can feel grains of sand filling up my shoes like an hourglass. It's a matter of a minute or two before all heck breaks loose. Try to reach this! Paul grabs one of the roots sticking out from the dirt at the base of the down tree. It's a long, sturdy one. He pulls with all his might to bend the root down far enough where I can grab it. I raise my arms to reach for it, but I'm not too happy about this plan. One thing, I'm what you would call a husky kid. Well, I prefer to be called husky. Some kids call me fat. Ever since third grade, I started packing on some extra weight, so I'm kind of heavy. This means that doing things like climbing and stuff isn't too easy for me. Actually, I can't do it. The other thing I wasn't happy about was that, as I reached up, I could feel the ground giving away a little more. The root was just out of my reach, and I called Paul to bend it down more. He was already straining pretty hard, and when I looked at him, I could see the veins bulging in his neck. His eyes looked like they were going to pop out behind his glasses. He pulled even harder, though, giving a big grunt as he did. For a moment, I could brush the root with my fingertips. Then... Paul slipped. He slid down into the crater on his button, bumped into me feet first. That was all she wrote, I thought, and I was right. My other leg broke through, and I began to fall. Just as I thought I was a goner, though, I felt something brush past my face, scratching up my nose. I opened up my eyes and saw the root right in front of me. On reflex, I grabbed it. My arms jerked hard, but my grip held. I'd stopped falling. I was up to my chest in the hole. When I kicked my feet, I found I still couldn't feel anything beneath me. This could be hundreds of feet deep. My arms were hurting, but I held on tight to that root, wondering how I was going to get out. Climb! It was Paul, screaming. He was near the edge of the hole with both hands pulling down on the root. Tears collected in his eyes, and some had run down his cheeks, making little tracks in the dirt and dust that had smeared on his face. 
Climb, he shouted again at the top of his lungs, almost shattering my eardrums. Well, I don't know how I did it because I can't do it in gym class. But I climbed. My right hand left the vine and found itself a few inches higher than it had been a moment before. With strength I didn't know I had, I kept going, hand over hand. My hands were just burning, and I have to admit I started crying because it hurt so bad, and I was really scared I was going to die. But I was almost out. Paul was scrambling out of the crater, towing the root behind him. He was helping me drag myself out of the hole. Finally, I got a foothold somewhere. I kicked around. The first two places my foot landed gave way and only widened the hole more. The third time, though, my foot caught solid ground, and I pushed hard to lift myself the rest of the way out. The next second, though, I felt myself slipping again, and I panicked. Then I felt Paul's hand grab my arm, and my other arm found something to hold on to. After what seemed like forever, I was finally out of the crater and safe again. Paul and I laid there, tangled up in each other, wheezing and breathing harder than we'd ever done before. We looked at each other. We were a mess, covered in dirt and muck. Then we laughed right in each other's face at first. Soon, we were holding our stomachs and laughing harder than we had ever laughed. We laughed so hard we both almost fell into the crater again, but we kept on laughing until there were tears rolling down our cheeks and we felt like we were going to puke. When we finally cut our breath, there was only one thing we could say to each other. Cool! We wanted to get a better look at the hole, but it was getting dark now. Not that my parents would get mad at me or anything, it's just that it was getting too dark to see. And after a scary experience like that, we pretty much wanted to get the heck out of the woods for a while. Lucky for us, when we got back to the house, my mom and dad were gone somewhere. Good. A lot less explaining to do about why we were so filthy. We decided Paul would call home and spend the night at my house. We would clean up, get some rest, and go back right away in the morning to get a better look at this mysterious hole in the woods. So, that's where things are right now. It's early in the morning. Way early. I get up like that sometimes. Paul is still sawing logs on the floor. I wanted to get this down on paper because it's important. There's something weird about that hole, and we're going to find out what it is. Could it be that something cool is finally happening to me? We'll see. I'll let you know what happens. You have been listening to the Bottomless Pit Podcast, created by Bill True. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, and also look for us on Facebook and Twitter. See you next time inside the Bottomless Pit.